Father, we do need revival. You are good, and you know we are quite often fickle, and uh, we draw near, and then we drift. So we need to be revived again. Come, even this morning, and fill us to overflowing with your Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, do an incredible work in our lives that you would bring the kingdom even now we would experience your presence and power and we would see you move mightily. We invite you to do that. If there's people here even this morning who need healing, Lord, heal them. Bring your power. Do your great work. If there's relationships that need to be restored, Father, bring forgiveness and restoration. If there's uh, financial needs, Father, Lord, provide. Um, Put a bunch of money in there. Lord, we need you, so we're asking you to to lead us. And teach us from your word about these two mountains that you speak about in Hebrews. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, turn to Hebrews chapter 12. We're going to look at verses 18 through 24, page 657 in the Bibles that we give away. If you don't have a Bible, just raise your hand. Someone will bring you one. It's our gift to you. We're going through the book of Hebrews, verse by verse. And we're looking today at a contrast of the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, okay? If you've ever wondered, what is some of the big differences between the Old Covenant and the Old Testament and the New Covenant and the New Testament, okay? When my middle son Isaac eight years old, uh, we went on a backpacking trip, and uh, where we hiked Notch Mountain, it was a four-day trip, had a blast. We hiked this mountain right here, okay? It wasn't snow on the mountain when we hiked it, okay? That's, uh, it was during the summer. And uh, this is a 13er, okay? It's 13,000 feet up, incredible, wonderful time. But we hiked this particular mountain because from this mountain you can see a great view of uh, Mount of the Holy Cross, which is a 14er. Okay, this is that mountain. Uh, And you can see the cross. Here's a picture. This is probably actually taken from Notch Mountain. So this is the view we had from the top of Notch Mountain as we looked at the Mount of the Holy Cross. And it was amazing, absolutely beautiful, stunning, uh, incredible views. Uh, uh, never forget it, okay? But one thing we discovered while we were on Notch Mountain was that we couldn't be on the Mount of the Holy Cross at the same time. I know, that's, you know, I'm pretty profound and, you know, some people might not have caught that, you know, but, we, you know, and I think it was my son, actually, probably the more intelligent one of the two of us that really realized that, okay, and you're thinking this is funny, but this is actually the point of our passage, okay? Our passage mentions two mountains, Mount Sinai and Mount Zion, and the whole point of the passage is you can't be on both mountains. You choose one or the other. That is what he's trying to say in this passage. The initial readers 
were actually considering going back to Mount Sinai. See, they were Jewish believers. They were considering going back to the law, back to Mount Sinai, back to the old covenant. And our writer is telling them, here's the difference between the mountains and why you don't want to go back to Mount Sinai. Okay, Uh, stay on Mount Zion. So let's look at our passage. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 18. For you have not come to what could be touched, to a blazing fire, to darkness, gloom, and storm, to the blast of a trumpet and the sound of words. Those who heard it begged that not another word be spoken to them, for they could not bear what was commanded. If even an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned. The appearance was so terrifying that Moses said, I am trembling with fear. Instead, you've come to Mount Zion to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to myriads of angels, a festive gathering, to the assembly of the firstborn whose names have been written in heaven, to a judge who is God of all, to the spirits of righteous people made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood which says better things than the blood of Abel. Now, They were tempted, but Christians in general, sometimes we are tempted to go back to Mount Sinai, back to legalism. And we want to see what's the difference, and I believe our passage should be the cure for that temptation, okay? So let's walk through it. First, it starts out with the first mountain, Mount Sinai, verses 18 through 21, a reference to the Old Covenant. So it's using this mountain as a symbol of the Old Covenant because that's where Moses received the Ten Commandments, the, the law from God, okay? Now, there are, in verses 18 through 21, we see this talks about blazing fire, darkness, gloom, and storm, and blasts of trumpets. It's, it's ominous. It's, it speaks of where this mountain, the people could come close to the mountain, but they dare not cross this barrier. That if they crossed the barrier and touched the mountain, even if an animal did that, it was to be killed. So that's like really, wow, okay, this is incredible. Two things about this uh, that aren't bad. They're actually good, but just not complete. And that's the point. Old covenant, it wasn't complete. The two things that we're to see in this is first the awe of God and then the law of God. Once again, both of those things are good, but not complete. So first of all, the awe of God. I mean, that's kind of what we see here. They are uh, in awe, right? Uh, Well, this is actually quoting Exodus 19. So let's go ahead and turn back to Exodus 19 and see what's going on. Uh, This is where the Jewish people were gathered together at Mount Sinai to hear the word of God. They're actually going to meet God, hear his voice as he gives the Ten Commandments, and they're kind of afraid, all right? (laughs) Look at how it's described. Exodus 19, verse 16. On the third day, when morning came, there was thunder and lightning, a thick cloud on the mountain, and a very loud trumpet sound, so that all the people in the camp shuddered. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God. 
and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Mount Sinai was completely enveloped in smoke because the Lord came down on it in fire. Its smoke went up like a smoke of a furnace and the whole mountain shook violently. As the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke and God answered him in the thunder. So, you know, you get the picture here. He goes on and describes how, you know, the Lord even tells him, make sure they don't cross that barrier. That's the one we read about here. Uh, if even an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned. A quote from Exodus 19, verse 12, actually. Okay, well, it goes on. And in chapter 20, we see God actually gives them the Ten Commandments. So God is speaking to them. He gives them the Ten Commandments. Now, I want you to skip down to verse 18 of chapter 20, which is the people's reaction, okay? Here's the reaction of the people to this ominous experience of God. It says, all the people witnessed the thunder and lightning, the sound of the trumpet, and the mountains surrounded by smoke. When the people saw it, they trembled and stood at a distance. You speak to us, and we will listen. They said to Moses, but don't let God speak to us or we will die. Moses responded to the people, don't be afraid, for God has come to test you so that you will fear him and will not sin. And the people remained standing at a distance as Moses approached the total darkness where God was. So a very, very ominous experience, full of awe, but the tragedy is the people's response to this, okay? Of course, they should have experienced awe. They're going to meet God, okay? But tragically, this experience caused them to shy away from God. They stood at a distance. They said to Moses, don't let him talk to us again. He can talk to you. You tell us what he says. They stood and remained at a distance. Now look at Moses' response to them in verse 20. 20. Don't be afraid, for God has come to test you so that you will fear him. Don't be afraid so that you will fear him. I know that sounds like a contradiction, but it's not because there are two different kinds of fear, and that's the point of this passage. There is the fear that causes us to not want to be near, and so we shy away from something. You know, if you're afraid of, you know, our dog was afraid of thunder, so he would, you know, tuck his tail under and go hide somewhere, okay? That kind of fear. But then there's the fear of the Lord that he's speaking of in the second, second part, where it's, yes, of course, I experience the awe of God. He's God and I'm not but I'm fascinated. I want to meet this God, and so it causes me to draw near to him, okay? Uh, this, in preparation of this passage, I remi- reminded me of a time in my life when I was hiking in Colorado. I was at a conference, and I was, had some alone time, and so I was just hiking all alone, and I'm just walking through the the forest and the beauty and just, you know, at a kind of a fast clip. And then all of a sudden, I felt like I came into the presence of God. And it was awe-inspiring. But it literally stopped me to where instead of that fast pace, I was barely taking a step. And it was because God convicted me of sin. 
as I was walking along, and God just stopped me, and he said, you will not take my glory. And I realized he was talking. I had written a book on worship of all subjects and was proud of it. You know, I never did anything with the book. I just, oh, yeah, okay, God. He got my attention, but I'll tell you what, although I was absolutely afraid, I'm I'm like, whoa, he is serious. I'll tell you what, I wouldn't change, I wouldn't trade that moment for a million dollars. It was so incredible experiencing the presence of God in the awesome glory of God was there. I was like, I was shaking, but it was awesome. Wonderful, okay? And, and that's, so that awe is not bad, but it must lead us to him, not away from him, okay? Uh, Paul Tripp writes in his book, it's titled Awe, interestingly. Between the already of the sin of Adam and Eve and the not yet of the final redemption A war wages over who or what will rule and control the awe capacity that God has established within the heart of every human being. As we've already seen, since every person is created with a capacity for awe, everyone is searching for a way to exercise that capacity. This awe capacity was meant to drive us to God in wonder and worship. But since sin separates us from him, our capacity for awe gets kidnapped by things other than God. So in grace, God does battle for the awe of our hearts. You could argue that one of the fundamental purposes of the great redemptive story and the person and work of Jesus is to recapture our hearts for the awe of God and God alone. And so the awe of God is not a bad thing, but it was their response to the awe by drawing back, and that's what our author is wanting to remind them. They missed it, and you haven't, because you're at Mount Zion. So the awe of the Lord, not bad, but just not complete, okay? And then the law of God, also a good thing. See, that's in this reference that our passage is talking about, that's when they received the law, the Ten Commandments. And the law is not bad. It is good, but it's not complete, okay? This brings us the question, what is the law of God received on Mount Sinai? And first of all, as I said, it's not bad. Look at Psalm 119. Psalm 119 is all about the law of God and how it is good. This is how the Old Testament saints understood the law. They didn't see it as a burden at all. They saw it as a good thing. If you look at Psalm 119, verse 18, he says, open my eyes so that I may contemplate wondrous things from your instruction. That word instruction is Torah. It's law. Open my eyes that I may contemplate the wondrous things from your instruction. Look at verse 47, I delight in your commands, which I love. (laughs) Look at verse 70, their hearts are hard and insensitive, but I delight in your instruction. Once again, Torah. Uh, Verse 77, 
He says, May your compassion come to me so that I may live, for your instruction is my delight. Verse 129. Your decrees are wondrous, therefore I obey them. Verse 163. I hate and abhor falsehood, but I love your instruction. Torah. Uh, Verse 165, abundant peace belongs to those who love your instruction. Nothing makes them stumble. And finally, verse 174, I long for your salvation, Lord, and your instruction, your Torah, is my delight. See, they delighted in the law of God. It was not a burden to the people of God, to the saints of the Old Testament. So it's not bad in and of itself, but what we, what we learn from the New Testament and what they should have remembered and what our, our author is trying to remind them as well is that the law was temporary. It was only for a time, a short time from Moses to Jesus. Look at Galatians chapter 3, verse 19. Here we see that Paul explains the point and purpose of, of the the law of Moses. Now, when I say the law of Moses, I'm not referring to the moral law that God gave Adam and Eve and from the very beginning he puts in the hearts of all people. Of course, we're supposed to do right and not do wrong. But the law, the complex law that we see in the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament, uh, that law, the law of Moses, look at how he describes it. Galatians 3, verse 19. Why then was the law given? It was added for the sake of transgressions until the seed to whom the promise was made would come. See, it was added because of their sins, but look at that word until. Until, meaning no longer after the seed, a reference to Jesus, okay? He goes on. The law was put into effect through angels by means of a mediator, Now, a mediator is not just one person alone, but God is one. Is the law, therefore, contrary to God's promises? Absolutely not. For if the law had been granted with the ability to give life, then righteousness would certainly be on the basis of the law. But the Scripture imprisoned everything under sin's power so that the promise might be given on the basis of faith in Jesus Christ to those who believe. Before this faith came... We were confined under the law, imprisoned until, there's that word again, the coming faith was revealed. The law then was our guardian until Christ so that we could be justified by faith. But since that faith has come, we're no longer under a guardian. For through faith you are all sons of God in Christ Jesus. So here he's saying that The law was meant for a time, for a purpose, to keep the people, because of their sins, to keep them together until Jesus comes. Once Jesus comes, he fulfills the law completely and ultimately, and we no longer need the law of Moses. So it was only for a time. And the authors, if if, if these people, these Jewish believers are tempted to go back to Judaism. That means they're going back to the law that we're no longer under. So the law was temporary. And we no longer come to God through the law. Let me read from Albert Moeller. He says, 
Furthermore, the distinction drawn between Sinai and Zion shows us that Christ perfectly fulfilled what Sinai represented. Christians do not come to Sinai since Christ fulfilled the law of Sinai. Jesus did not nullify or invalidate the Old Testament law. Rather, he did what no sinful human could do. He perfectly obeyed and fulfilled the law. Thus, God's people no longer identify with the place that God's law was given, but with the place that God's law was fulfilled. Jesus fulfilled the law. That's what Matthew 5, 17 and 18 says, the great fulfillment principle. He fulfilled it, so we're no longer, we no longer come to God through the law. We, we no longer come to God through Mount Sinai. That was represented by the law. We now come to God through Mount Zion. That that's where Jesus died on the cross, okay? Uh, Jerusalem, Mount Zion, we'll see in just a moment here, okay? But here, we, we still, of course, seek to obey the moral law. Don't murder, don't lie, steal, etc. But we don't come to God by the law. And the biggest significant change from the old to the new is our relationship with God. We don't abandon God's law, and we certainly don't desert awe of God, but now there's no boundary. Remember the boundary for the mountain? They couldn't dare go near it because they couldn't come right to the very presence and glory of God. They had to be a little bit distant. But now, because of Jesus Christ, who completely fulfilled the law, he invites us, there's no boundary at Mount Zion. You can come into the very presence of God. He says you can come into the very holy of holies and experience the presence of God if you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. That's his plan. And so why would we want to go back to the law and try to get to God through obedience and being good and those kinds of things? Now, once again, you're, we're supposed to obey God, right? But that's not how we come to him because none of us could come to him that way, could we? But Christ, because he did come to him that way, now we can come to him through Christ and experience his very presence. So the, the old covenant, Mount Sinai, now he can contrast that. Oh, by the way, here's Mount Sinai, okay? Kind of rugged, austere. Here's another picture of it. Uh, but Mount Zion, okay, now this is uh, probably just maybe not what it actually looks like. But, but, but it says it's the heavenly Jerusalem, so it's something to come, okay? We don't know what it's going to be like. The book of Revelation describes it as coming down from heaven to the earth. And so what is it going to be like? I don't know. You know, good as any, right? All right. But uh, the new covenant, Mount Zion. Now, this term Mount Zion, the the uh, Jebusites actually had controlled it, and David went and took it from the Jebusites, and, and so he had that mountain, and, and he put his his uh, palace there, and then and then uh, and brought the ark there, and then after that, his son Solomon built the temple near there, and so Mount Zion became actually a reference to all of Jerusalem. Okay, it became. Jerusalem. And in our passage, it describes it as the new Jerusalem. Look at verse 22 here. Instead, you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. 
So how are we to understand this new Mount Zion? Now, a couple things I want to say about this. This is very important because I think he's, this is what he's saying, the author of Hebrews, to these original people who are, who are being tempted to go back to Mount Zion. Okay, Here's where he's trying to promote this. He's first of all speaking. Oh, I forgot this picture. This is a good one. You know, you know we get the wolf and the lamb, and it's, that's what it's going to be like someday, right? It's going to be awesome. Okay, But... Under the new covenant, first of all, he's talking about conversion. Now, if you look very carefully in verse 22, instead you have come to Mount Zion. This verb here is actually a very common verb, but when it's used in this tense, and I don't want to bore you with Greek, but uh, the perfect tense, perfect active indicative tense of this word is used to refer to conversion, when someone converts to the Lord, okay? So it can just be a, a real basic come, you know, to come, but in this tense, it means to come to the Lord through conversion. Um, uh, so, so we see this idea here of conversion. Uh, you have come. You have experienced conversion. Jesus talked about this. He said in John 3.3, 3, unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. So it's talking about that complete and total conversion where you repent of your sins, place your faith in Jesus Christ, surrendering to him as Lord, trusting in him and him alone for your salvation. Uh, in the New Testament, you, you, uh, you outwardly express that faith in baptism. Okay, When you truly are born again, you're converted. So that's the have come, the perfect tense there of that verse. So those, you, he's speaking to them, the, the true believers, you have come to Mount Zion. So he's speaking, first of all, of that conversion. Only true believers have come to Mount Zion. Now, what, but what's also interesting in that perfect tense, okay, I'm going to bore you a little more with Greek, okay, is that has Mount Zion come yet? It says, you have come. That's a past tense. Perfect is a past tense. You have come to Mount Zion that isn't here yet. This is what theologians call the inaugurated kingdom, meaning that there's a, it's now and not yet. You've heard me use that phrase before, right? Okay, the kingdom of God is now in part. It's already here. It's something to come in the future, but we've already tasted the experience of it in the now, okay? And I want to taste lots of it, right? Do you want just a little bit of the kingdom or a lot of the kingdom? I want as much as we can get, right? It's up to God, but this is this inaugurate. You have come. He's reminding them. You've experienced this. He's been telling them this throughout the book of Hebrews before this. You've experienced the presence of God. You've experienced healings. You've seen miracles. God has come in a sense already. I was, uh, this just this last week, I met uh, Dr. Elias Massey, okay? He is a, a doctor at the, uh, um, the VA, and, and he shared his testimony. His testimony is amazing, okay? This guy, okay, he grew up Muslim in Pakistan. 
And his family, and this is what he says. I don't even understand how this could have worked, but this is what, this is what he experienced, okay? His, he was 18, this was 1981. His younger sister began to sense words from Jesus to teach to their family. I know that sounds really weird, right? Okay, but this is what happened to him. Uh, and they would gather every evening, and then Jesus would use her and teach the family, and they all came to Jesus. They all became Christians. Then they went out to their neighbors and started sharing with their neighbors, and they got uh, saved. They even prayed for the sick. They saw people healed in this, and a there was like a little mini revival that took place in their village, okay? Uh, he continued this, and he was also going to school. I think that's where he, you know, he went to school to, to become a doctor and so forth. And then, but then later, persecution hit, okay? So during this time period, in the early 80s, there was, there was no persecution going on, on the, about, for the Christians in Pakistan. But then later, persecution hit, and so he had to flee, and he came here. He's been here, I think, like 29 years. You know, I mean, that's kingdom stuff, you know? I mean, he's not lying about it. <laughs> this is what happened to him, and he had to actually flee, but he became a Christian because of this. I want to see that kind of stuff, don't you? Okay, the, the kingdom of God, it's now and not yet, but here we see he's reminding them, you've tasted this kingdom, yeah, you're getting persecuted, but you've tasted this. Remember, he's reminding them of these kinds of things, okay? And then he, remind, and he speaks of the inhabitants of the kingdom. He talks about the myriad of angels. Uh, myriad of angels is like a scene from the Lord of the Rings, right? Uh, you know, Rivendale. You got that, those of you who have seen the movies, right? The rest of you are looking at me like, what are you talking about? Okay, you know, I, I just try, it helps me, all right? But, but whatever this means, a myriad of angels. The angels are going to be walking around the city of Jerusalem, the heavenly city, with the angels walking around right with us. Hey, Joe, how's it going? You know, I mean, that's what he's saying. So this is the citizens of this kingdom, the, the myriad of angels. He goes on and he says, uh, the, the assembly of the firstborn whose names have been written in heaven. This is a reference to all of God's people, the true people of God, those who have been born again or will be born again before Jesus returns. Then he says, to a judge who is God of all, God the judge. And this is a reminder to them that if you're a true believer, you don't experience judgment because Jesus experienced the judgment for you. But if you're not a true believer, if, you're, if, you, if, you, if those who walk away who weren't true believers, they're going to meet the judge, and that's how serious this is. But as true believers... He's the judge, but he's already poured out the judgment on Jesus in our behalf. And that's the next part here we see is Jesus, King Jesus himself. And to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. And to the sprinkled blood, which says better things than the blood of Abel. Now, he finishes this, and, and this, the reason why we can enter the kingdom is because of the blood of Jesus. He says that it's better than the blood of Abel. Now, you're thinking, okay, well, 
How is it better than the blood of David? What exactly does he mean? Scholars actually disagree on this one, okay? So let me give you the two options, and they both actually sound pretty good. So you you can decide what you want. Uh, The first one is that Abel was murdered, right? Cain killed Abel, and he's speaking of Abel's blood that cried out from the ground, that cried out for vengeance. And so uh, vengeance... And that was right for, the, you know, for Abel to be crying off of vengeance. But that's not as great as Jesus' blood that brought grace and forgiveness. So that could be the contrast. But in my opinion, more than likely, he's referring to Abel's sacrifice because he already spoke of Abel's sacrifice in chapter 11, verse 4. Abel was the very first person in the Bible to offer a sacrifice. So, so here, Abel offers a sacrifice. So I would say that represents all the sacrifices under the old covenant, okay? Those sacrifices were good. They pointed to the fact that God accepts substitution. If we try to come to God by our own works, none of us will get there. But God says he allows substitution. Now, the, the, the sacrifices were were showing that God allows substitution, but they actually, as we learn from the book of Hebrews, they point to the fact that Jesus is the ultimate sacrifice because those sacrifices, they weren't voluntary, right? No animal said, hey, I'll sign up, let me die, right? They weren't, and they were just animals. Whereas Jesus' sacrifice was absolutely perfect, because and sufficient for the forgiveness of all of our sin because of the infinite value of Jesus and because it was voluntary. Jesus voluntarily gave his life for us and because Jesus fulfilled the old covenant law perfectly in our behalf. So why would you want to go back to Mount Sinai when you see this incredible contrast? There are two mountains that he's describing here the law and grace mount sinai and mount zion albert moeller concludes he says this paragraph is the crescendo of the book of hebrews it reminds us in both poetic and prosaic terms that we are not going to that old mountain ever again. Sinai has been displaced and the old covenant has been fulfilled. You can't be on both Mount Sinai and Mount Zion at the same time. But have you ever entered the kingdom of God? Have you been born again? There is no more important question than those questions. Let's pray. Father, uh, we have experienced your glory in part at times. and I know I've experienced that sense of awe in your presence as well. I ask that all of your people could have those tastes of your goodness and glimpses of your glory. But we thank you for your son, Jesus, dying on the cross so that our sins could be forgiven. That, Jesus, you paid the penalty I was supposed to pay for my sins. And simply by trusting in you, 
and you alone for my salvation. I'm forgiven. I'm born again. I'm your child. I've entered into Mount Zion somehow, some way already. <laughs> Father, if there's anyone here who has, who's on the outside looking in, they're still on Mount Sinai, still trusting in their goodness or their works, instead of putting their trust in Christ and him alone for their salvation, bring them in today. And thank you for your goodness. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and worship our God.